Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kachi, and this week we are rejoined by a friend of the pod in Ryan Hoover, who's the managing partner of Weekend Fund, as well as Jordan Godin, co-founder and CEO of Compound, a fintech platform that provides wealth management and advisory services to founders and employees of startup companies. This is a really fun and special episode as we cover the growing intersection of the private wealth sector and venture capital fund investing, as well as the broader trends we are seeing in the markets. We really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ryan and Jordan. I'm absolutely thrilled to have this week's show sponsored by Frank Rimmerman, who serve as home for over 500 VC firms for their tax and audit needs. They're also one of the largest providers of services for the emerging manager community. And as somebody that's worked with them for over 10 years, I can attest to the early commitment they made to MicroVC when it was first getting started. If you're a venture firm in the market for audit and tax, be sure to give them a call. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlock are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. And I I know this is going to be an an incredibly interesting episode of Venture Unlocked, given your backgrounds, Ryan, both as an entrepreneur and now uh, a fund manager that's deployed out of three funds. And Jordan, you building a really interesting and compelling wealth management platform for startup employees. And I know a lot of what we will discuss is this growing demand by non-institutional investors to invest in alternatives, including venture capital, which we've all seen. So maybe a great place to start is, Jordan, what was the inspiration for starting Compound, and what are you delivering as a service to these entrepreneurs? Definitely. Um, Thank you, Samir. So my name is Jordan. I'm I'm one of the founders of Compound. My background is in software engineering. Um, I helped start the company mainly because I didn't understand my finances. So having worked in tech, me and, and lots of my, what I thought to be smart friends, were really confused by all of these kind of acronyms and terms and opportunities that kind of came up as we were working you know, in our careers in tech. And after talking to lots of financial advisors and tax advisors and lawyers and HR, it turned out there was no great place that really felt kind of built for us to kind of navigate this amount of noise that exists in the world. So what we built at Compound is a financial platform really kind of specifically designed for tech people. So startup founders, startup investors, employees, and we help them kind of navigate this, this kind of complicated minutia, things like taxes and investing and borrowing um, and kind of tracking all of their assets. And in particular, you know, one of those nuances, one of those opaque worlds kind of as you're coming into wealth that you have to really deal with is this question of, well, where do I allocate my money? And as you get more wealth, it turns out you unlock this world that, you know, perhaps you see every once in a while in TechCrunch, you see funds, you see weird percentages, but you actually have to answer the question for yourself, where are you going to put your money? Um, and, And that question, I think, has gotten weirdly harder to answer over the years, although there are more and more things you can do with your money. 
the question of what you should do with it isn't particularly simple. So that that's what our job is, is to help people navigate that world. And we don't pretend to have a crystal ball, but we do, you know, we do focus on really helping people make smart decisions. And it's gotten much more complex. I remember, you know, 15 years ago, you'd come into wealth, you go to a wealth advisor, and really there's two assets that you're buying. You're buying public equities, often indexes, or you were investing in fixed income. And, and that was the 60-40 portfolio. And then I remember 10 years ago, that changed because the interest rate environment changed. And people looked at fixed income and said, this is not an interesting place to invest and started to look at alternatives. And alternatives, just for the audience, anything that isn't fixed income or public equities, it can be a private equity fund, a private credit fund, a hedge fund, a venture capital fund. And Ryan, for you, coming from from being an entrepreneur to a fund manager, I know this is something that you've seen as well in terms of the the type of LPs that have invested in, you know, weekend fund. Maybe you can unpack a little bit of what Jordan's saying is what have you seen with high net worth ind- individuals and maybe some of their motivations of investing in venture capital funds them, themselves? Yeah, I think the, the term alternatives, by the way, is kind of a funny one because I guess alternatives to me have been the primary, I suppose. Uh, like I, I haven't had a lot of um, liquidity to invest in other assets. And so I've been investing, you know, out of a fund into early stage startups. And, you know, my career has always been in startups. So anyway, the term alternative is kind of a funny one for me, even though I it, clinically I, I understand it. Yes. So by the way, I'm a compound user. I've been using it. It's great for like visualizing my assets and putting everything in one place. So a little plug there. So take a step back. If you go back to, I don't know, maybe 2010s, um, early 2010s, you saw sort of this rise of like the angel investor and many people got into angel investing directly investing in startups. And this was driven in part because more people were getting into tech. They had friends that worked at these companies. There were success stories of people getting wealthy by angel investing. More of those tech people had liquidity to invest, you know, in their friends' companies or people in their network. And I think we're seeing something very similar happening among LPs uh, when it comes to GPs. So you see more and more funds emerging. And as more funds emerge, these GPs are recruiting people in their network. People that may not have thought about LP investing. Maybe it wasn't an asset class they were looking at or thinking to invest in, but they trust Bob and or Sarah or whoever's starting the fund and they want to back that individual to support them, but maybe also hopefully to get a financial return. That is a very interesting trend. I feel like you know LP investing is kind of similar to angel investing a decade, maybe 15 years ago or so. And as a result, I think we're, we're, we are, I need to actually back this up with data. Maybe Samir, you have some, uh, but it feels like there's a whole new class of LPs kind of emerging that aren't the traditional institutional LPs or family offices that we're used to. So we've seen this too. And, and part of it has been the rise of just technology being so ubiquitous, right? I think if you looked at 15 years ago, you know, there was really no iPhone, there was no mass distribution, cloud computing started to become a thing, AWS. And that not only drove the Cambrian effect or Cambrian explosion of startups, but really the Cambrian explosion of venture funds and venture funds used to be off limits, right? I mean, if you think about investing in some of the top funds, when you have a minimum that's 5, 10, 15 million, it's, it obviates a large world of the population. But Ryan, to your point, going back to 2009, 2010, we started to see smaller, more artisanal firms coming to market. And actually, a lot of the LP base for those fund ones were not the endowments, the foundations, the fund of funds but they were individuals. And these individuals weren't just the big family offices, but oftentimes they were simple accredited investors 
who had the ability to write $50,000 check and get access. And of course, I know, Ryan, you've worked on platforms like AngelList, where AngelList, I think, was the first to really allow people to invest in both co-investments as well as funds. But I'd love to hear from you, Ryan, again, because you've worked with so many of these people as LPs. What is the motivation for a fund manager taking these type of checks? And then secondarily, what are some of the motivations you've heard from them? Has it been primarily outsized returns or are there other motivations and incentives that you've seen of some of these individuals that are not family offices investing in some of your funds? Yeah. So for context, we're on our third fund. We have about 370 LPs in our latest fund. And the way that we did that, so we have a, wrote a blog post on how we did this structurally, because a lot of people think that you're limited to 99 LPs in each fund, which isn't exactly true. But we essentially have two parallel funds, one for QPs, one for non-QPs. And I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but that allowed us to take on more LPs. We also structured the fund as a 506C, so we could talk about it publicly without you know getting in trouble. And so we first raised a majority of the funds from our existing LPs and people in our network. And then we raised the remaining, let's say, $3 million, roughly, um, of a $21 million fund in, the, in public. So we basically opened up applications to anyone, uh, primarily using Twitter and like LinkedIn in terms of our, our audience and following, and took applications for people that wanted to, to invest as an LP. We capped those investments at 10 k So everything from $2,000 to $10,000 was, was the size of the LP check in this kind of audience because we didn't actually want to raise you know, a, a lot more. We didn't want to raise a massive fund. So we got about 600, maybe 700 or so applicants. Uh, almost all of them were accredited because we qualified them in the beginning. And then we took, we could only make room for maybe a couple hundred or so, or maybe 150. Anyway, all that to say, the motivations of those people were, and some of it is me reading between the lines. We should probably do a proper survey to, to get the honest truth. But based on a lot of the conversations and things that we've observed, the one is, you know, some people believe in us and think we'll return more money than, you know, they gave us, uh, which is the goal. But some of it's also about just getting involved, getting in the game. Some of these people, this is their first LP check. And it's kind of similar to writing your first angel check. It's, it's a way to get experience and to get a sense of what it's like to be an LP. Some people kind of joke that it's like a really expensive, like newsletter subscription in a sense, because we send LP updates. It includes details on our investment, some take on, on the market and other things that we're experimenting with. And I think that too is kind of a way for people to learn. And so part of that motivation is, is to learn. Part of it's, of course, financial return. And I think the third part, some of it, I don't know if people admit this, there might be a status element to it too as well. And I'll go back to angel investing. You know, oh, I'm an angel investor in Uber or Airbnb or name your, your unicorn. Like to many people, that's, that's some sign of status. Like I picked it right. And while funds are very different, there is an element of that where I got into this fund. Like I am in Andreessen Horowitz or I'm in Sequoia. Like to some people that that is, there's an element of status seeking there or um, peacocking to some extent. And so I think all three of those things kind of play into this trend to, to pull and kind of create a magnet for this new LP class. That certainly aligns with my observation. And we actually recently had a conversation about this internally where we distill down the motivation of why a lot of individuals invest in things like venture. And it is around being able to participate in the innovation economy, the learning, the status that comes with it. The second is diversification and being able to invest in something that's not a traditional stock or bond. And the third is the potential for outsized returns. The third is 
the most difficult to get given the skew toward that top quartile. But before we look at what makes for a great venture manager, I'd love to hear from you, Jordan. How do you think about counseling somebody that's considering investing in venture? What makes for a good candidate to invest versus not invest in this asset category? You know, in, in trying to figure out where you should allocate your money, it's often a question of what your risk tolerance is. And, you know, in asking professionals, I'm, I'm often told, well, what's your risk tolerance? Um, and for me, you know, as someone potentially new to the finance world, that, that never really struck a chord with me. I, I didn't know if I was like a three on the risk scale or a seven or an eight. It felt like this very kind of mushy, abstract concept. So when building Compound and, you know, and thinking about helping clients kind of answer this really hard, important, valuable question, we thought about like, what does risk really mean? And and the way it manifests for an individual investor, as you're thinking about where to allocate your money, is actually quite tactical. Like this is math at the end of the day. Um, and the way to really model it out is to think about what will your income look like in the future, right? And then what will your expenses look like in the future? And if you're in the negative, that's a problem. And if you're in the positive, you have some room to work with, right? And and thinking about your asset allocation and where you allocate your money, you want to have an idea and visibility into what your liquidity will look like in the future and how much you know volatility you could handle before getting into the red too much. So when thinking about this investment decision, you know, very similar to answering the question of should I invest in Apple or should I invest in S&P 500 or should I park it in cash? I want to start with this kind of broader understanding of, you know, what can I tolerate? And the reality is is for a lot of people, investing in an asset class like venture is something that is actually not a good idea. Right. For a lot of people without a lot of liquidity, without a lot of patience, without a lot of time horizon, it's actually a very, and I'll use the word risky decision, um, because you may not be able to stomach the kind of volatility that could exist. And I think to Samir's point, you know, over the past 10 years, every VC who writes medium posts, who like is big on Twitter, you know, may be up into the right. But now, um, you know, there's this, there's this element of trust, I think, in underwriting funds or companies that is much, much harder for the individual investor to navigate. And the reality I find is that, you know, most people um, who are not professional underwriters of funds are not particularly good at understanding what makes a good fund a good fund. And um, they're far better often at underwriting people because they've worked with so many people over the years that um, they have a, a somewhat good gauge of like what what someone they would want to bet on is. Uh, to kind of conclude, I think to Ryan's point, you know, one other observation we've had as we've helped, you know, thousands of people kind of make these sort of decisions in tech is that the ROI function for where you allocate your money is not purely a financial decision. And it may be uncomfortable to say it to yourself, you know, or write it to yourself, but I find that, you know, there are other reasons to invest or spend your money. And one of those may be learning, maybe fun, maybe status, et cetera. But when you're making one of these risky investment types, you may want to bucket it in your fun bucket. And and then the question for you is, are you comfortable investing this much money in something that, you know, is, is purely for fun or whatnot? The way I look at things is, you know, the fun and the diversification doesn't have to come at the expense of a great return, right? These things are not mutually exclusive. In fact, you can do those things and then invest in the in the right funds, which, you know, from a financial standpoint can be very lucrative for an individual if they picked right. Now, that said, I want to run this by, by you both, and I'd love to get your perspective, maybe starting with Ryan. Investing in venture is still a really opaque, difficult experience. 
even though it might only be 1% to 10% of somebody's portfolio, to get it right, it might be the inverse amount of time they have to spend to get it right, the diligence, the sourcing. In the public markets, all of us can see every stock. In order to evaluate the stock, the information is there. It's public. I can download the 10Ks, the 8Ks. I can read about everything. If I want to invest in the stock, so long as I'm willing to pay the price, I don't need a relationship with the company, nor do I need to buy X amount of shares. In VC, it's totally different. So you know, the question is, as an individual investor, when you are participating, how, do you, how should you think about the evaluation of a fund manager? And maybe Ryan to start off because I know you're also you're a steward of capital. You are investing on behalf of these people, and you've also done some LP investments. So what do you look at? And then Jordan, I'm going to pass it to you because you also do that level of diligence in your shop. So love to hear both of your opinions. I'll be honest. Um, I'm still figuring out exactly. I'm, I'm learning on the LP side, uh, so I, I've many years uh, investing into companies directly, and I have a thesis and sort of criteria that I look for in GPs and managers that I back. But I'm still learning, and I, I've kind of found that it's is very opaque, especially when you're investing in emerging managers. Maybe this is their first fund. You don't even have track record, let alone if that track record exists. Maybe it's not really accurate, you know, because markups are markups, and you know, times change. So. For me personally, I'll speak to, to what I look for and what I'm interested in. And this is also where it'll be really, really interesting to hear your perspective, Samir, on this. Um, so I'm really interested in two different types of funds personally. One are smaller funds. So kind of sub $20 million funds, similar to weekend fund, we're $21 million fund. And the belief there is these are sort of collaborative investors. They're people that can theoretically squeeze into competitive deals. They don't have to lead. They can also be future deal flow. So there's non-financial kind of uh, motivations too for me to be a supporter and a backer of these funds. And there's, there's also a motivation just to support these emerging managers who are just starting out who often have the hardest time raising capital. So that's, that's one bucket. And then there's another bucket of vertically focused funds for me where these might be larger funds, but they're domain experts, they're magnets for very specific spaces and they're also ideally fund managers who are investing in spaces that I am not familiar with, nor am I investing in. So it might be things in sustainability. It might be things in longevity. Those are areas I know nothing about really, and therefore don't invest in those categories. So from a personal allocation kind of diversification perspective, I'm getting some exposure into that world of venture, that asset class. And we might see massive returns in, in those different categories. And, and I have my own kind of like high level thesis around like longevity and why now is a good time or sustainability and why now is a good time. And so those are sort of the two different types of funds that I look for and basically try to avoid the, the $100 million generalist funds. Not that they won't possibly be successful, but I, I fear that generalist funds that are large are going to have a hard time differentiating and winning large enough allocations to return you know, substantial um, multiples. I think it's really important, again, to really evaluate investment decisions in context of your broader financial life. And, you know, as you do that kind of cash flow modeling exercise to understand, do you have the budget for these sort of risky investment decisions? Once you say yes, then there's the kind of sub decisions to make around, you know, okay, where should you put it? At Compound, we offer clients exposure to private equity funds, uh, venture funds, real estate funds, credit funds, you know, a wide variety of different options, even within the risky category for the world. But venture is obviously an appealing class for our audience for, for many different reasons. Um, 
I laugh a little bit at diversification sometimes when, you know, a client has 90% of their net worth in tech stocks. And then they say, oh, I want to diversify into this venture fund that invests exclusively in tech stocks. Of course, you can be bullish on tech broadly, but we also help people think, well, maybe it makes sense to kind of put it into a different category for the world. So, so that's, that's kind of one aspect here. When I think about the underwriting of, you know, an individual fund, you know, we have an investment team um, that, that runs the process. But in general, what I, what I like to kind of zoom out around, and I didn't invent this framing, but I, I think it really resonates with me, is this concept of incentives. And having worked in tech, you know, my incentive has often been one of abundance, right? I've always thought about how do I build the biggest thing that impacts the most people that is just more is more, right? It's like, let's, let's go more. But in investing, it actually is the opposite often, right? Where if you have a bigger fund, right, if you raise billions of dollars for your fund, it actually is harder to achieve alpha for your investors, right? Because there's not as much, you know, alpha in the marketplace, whether it be public or the private marketplace. So what I've often thought about when I'm thinking about giving money to people is, well, what is their incentive, right? And if you have a fund that's in the capital accumulation business, right, in the public markets, we know, you look at Blackstones of the world, you know, they're in the business of accumulating assets, right? Because the public market, only compensates sustainable recurring revenue often compared to carry, right? So they all trade on effectively management fees. Now, that can still give you great opportunities and can still be great, but is a different incentive than someone who's really hunting for alpha, right? And if the, the person, you know, is less compensated by management fees and is more caring about carry, you know, obviously the two are related because if you have, if you have no performance, you know, you're not gonna be able to get management fees in the future. But that that breakdown is really, really telling sometimes. And I, what I would admire what Ryan said, which again, backwards to my original brain was we didn't want to raise a bigger fund, right? Which is so backwards. If you're thinking about a company, we want to say no to more customers, right? It's like, why would you do that? Um, but actually having that maturity and Samir, I, I'm sure you can, you can chat to it, you know, having seen ups and downs of people who raise giant funds and perform worse and then return to something smaller. But that maturity and discipline, I think makes, makes for a really great investor often. Yeah, I agree with that. And something that I've been pondering personally is just areas within venture that provide a better probability of outsized returns. And recently, I actually came across this great piece by Frank Rotman at QED Investors, and he outlined four areas that he considered points of stability within venture. And they were solo GPs, the tier one platforms, the growth, the top growth funds, and then looking at firms that are non-consensus niche players, and the latter being somebody that might have extreme GP thesis fit around a sector and can see things that other investors can't. At the end of the day, even within those points of stability, which I agree with, you still have to find the right managers that have authentic and meaningful differentiation. And it typically comes down to sourcing, winning, and picking. Ryan, as a fund manager, Given the market today, what do you think it takes to be successful and really provide that level of service to entrepreneurs that allows you to see the deals, pick the deals, and win the deals? Yeah, um, maybe I'll, I'll go through each of those and how we're specific things that we're doing um, to make it maybe more tangible at Weekend Fund. Um, so on, on the winning side, this is me, I'll, I'll go in reverse order. There are founders out there that Sometimes money is green, but when they have many options, they, they'd want other founders or other operators, someone who has experience maybe in an area that they want support or help in. And so there's there's some experience that I have and Vedika, my partner on the fund as well, have that I think is attractive. But 
going back to what we we're saying before, our fund, again, is small enough where we can write a collaborative check. We can, in some cases, sneak into deals when they've already closed their round. So we don't have to compete one-to-one. It's not a zero-sum game with another lead or squeeze other people out. So that's those are just two different kind of components of weekend fund for the winning part. In terms of the the evaluation part, this is this is actually the hardest one because we're investing pre-seed, seed stage. Um, we have a lot of perspectives on certain markets. We are a generalist fund, but we're ultimately looking for someone who has some sort of insight into a consumer behavior shift, a technology shift. They're building upon some some clear answer to the why now question. And we've more recently brought on two part-time analysts to help us actually go deeper into the specific categories that we're interested in. And so we're investing more time into educating ourselves and then creating, in some ways, like a magnet for other people to come to us who are building in these spaces that we have some sort of thesis in. And again, I, I hate the word thesis to some extent because like we're not the ones building the future, it's the founders. But we, we have some sort of education or perspective on a market that this founder is building in, which makes it easier for us to make a decision whether to invest or not. And then on the the deal flow side, one specific thing that we're doing and, and have been working on is something called Signature Block, which it's another newsletter. We, we There's so many of them, but we felt that there wasn't as much education for people who want to start funds or manage funds. And our strategy here is really crowdsourcing content around how to raise from LPs, how to communicate with LPs, how to model your fund, all these different things that go into managing a fund. We're, we're crowdsourcing that information and sharing it. And our selfish reason for that is we're building more of this top of funnel relationship with a bunch of emerging managers, future managers, co-investors. We're, we're trying to stay top of mind so that one, they, they hopefully find value in this, but two, they think of us, you know, when they're investing in a company and want to connect with a, an investment opportunity. And so there are a bunch of other things we do kind of within that stack of those three different I guess, jobs to be done as an investor. But I think at a macro level, I think what's more important is is differentiation and standing out is more important than ever as we have more and more people investing today. And whether that's going super deep, deep into a specific niche or like us being more generalist, but hyper collaborative and well-connected, I think there's many different ways to play the game. The, the key is to figure out what is the game that you should be playing, I think, and then lean into it really hard. Yeah, and it, it goes back to the, uh, the comment of, it's basically GP thesis fit to make sure that you're playing in an arena that you can be competitive. And what we did see, and I think Jordan, you mentioned this, is there was so much capital that was available, certainly during 2000, late 2020, 21, where people were being given the opportunity to raise bigger and bigger funds. And they were taking that capital and that sometimes pushed them out of the arena that they should have been in, right? And competing with different people, Mike Maples has said, your fund size is your strategy, which of course is true. And that and it can come at, at the detriment of LP returns. When we are talking about these things, you know, picking winning sourcing and evaluating managers, if you have the time and you have the domain expertise, so you can do these things. If you don't, what often happens, and we've seen this pretty commonly, is you start investing in things based on first degree connections. You know, your friend, John sends you something. John says, hey, this is a great deal. You should do it. They do it. And there isn't really that evaluation or there's not an easy heuristic to say, okay, this is not an investable opportunity. Maybe Jordan, you can talk a little bit about, and Ryan as well, what are some of the the red flags that people can really quickly suss out when talking to a manager that would make them non-investable? Yeah. Well, when both of you um, were chatting about, you know, the job of the GP, I think what's interesting is that individuals are kind of their mini own GP of their personal 
balance sheet, right? And as they're thinking about where to allocate their money, you know, they have a similar job to be done, right? Um, a lot of our clients, for instance, are tech founders. They're engineers at some of the best tech companies. And what's interesting is that for some reason, when you start talking about money, you know, the engineering brain shuts off um, and you say, hey, this is this is a different type of problem. But when I think about heuristics, you know, a simple one that, that I, I believe in greatly and encourage, you know, all of our clients to subscribe to is this idea that you should understand where you're putting your money. And it sounds maybe obvious, but oftentimes people will put their money in things they don't understand. And at that point, um, perhaps they've been convinced by some slick salesperson who talks fast and, you know, looks cool. But if they can't explain in a very simple language what it is they're doing, whether this is a direct investment opportunity or this is a tax strategy or, frankly, any, anything, then I, I recommend you stay away with, from it. And, you know, in particular, our clients, which is surprising that I have to convince people of this at times, is that our clients are really smart people, right? They're people perhaps like Ryan who built companies, you know, taught full time, you know, their job is like doing hard, impressive things. But when it comes to money, there's this weird psychological element where sometimes people are say, hey, this is too hard for me. So the biggest thing I encourage our people to do, because I, I think they're smart, is just be curious and ask questions and ask, why did you do this? And 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 nothing's off limits when you're your money you're giving to them, right? So um, you should, you should, you know, you have the right to ask them, you know, these sort of questions. And, and that's where I would generally start. Ryan, what, what do you think? I mean, because you've seen, I mean, you co-invest with so many different managers. You've looked at some, and even within kind of the smaller investor universe, those are the, the type of funds that are often available to your common accredited. The bigger funds tend to be QP, meaning that the investor has to have at least $5 million of investable net worth. And even then, the check sizes sometimes limit who you know who can actually invest. So a lot of people are looking at this world of, let's call it emerging managers, micro VCs. And that can be you know an area that has a lot of volatility of performance, right, from one manager to another. So are there red flags or things that people should immediately ask the manager that can get them to at least an initial screen of whether it's something that's worth exploring and perhaps investing in. Yeah, for me, it's it's actually kind of going back to what you said. So I, I like to understand if they understand what their edge is. So essentially, what is their strategy? What are they investing in? And then why did they choose that strategy or that direction? Is it because they think that's what LPs want to hear? Is it because their other friend uses that same strategy? Um, in some ways, it's actually, I'm less interested in the answer. I'm more interested in how they came to the answer, if that makes sense. Like, what was their thought process for that strategy in particular? And then, of course, does that align with where I think that they have an edge? And then going to what Jordan said, too, if, if they have any investment history, sometimes they've done angel investments. Sometimes they've led SPVs before they, they start their first fund. Understanding that background, certainly the track record can be maybe slightly helpful, but actually more so the the decisions that they made to invest in particular companies is helpful. So asking, hey, why did you invest in this company? What was your, your thought process at the time? And it doesn't mean that the company actually has to be successful per se. It's just more, can I get inside their brain and understand how they think when they're evaluating these companies? And I forget who said it, but it's it's really easy to, to deploy capital. Like once you've raised money, it's it's it actually feels like you're making progress when you deploy capital, ironically, when in reality, the you're, you won't know the performance of that for many, many years. And in some cases, not deploying capital is actually the harder part of the job. 
And, you know, I spoke with a friend of mine who raises, has a larger fund than, than I do, who held off deploying capital in the past like 18 months because he felt prices were too high. And, you know, who knows if that's a wise decision or not, but at least he had a, a strong perspective and, and commitment to doing right by what he thought was to his LPs, um, you know, not deploying capital into to opportunities that he felt was not going to be lucrative for the fund. I guess it all kind of comes down to how do I get inside their head and understand their strategy at the end of the day? Yeah, that certainly maps back to a lot of what we've talked about, which is the why versus just the what. Zooming out for a second and maybe focusing on the macro, we've all seen the change of the markets. Of course, the violent reversal of the bull run in 2022. We're in 2023 now. And I'd love to get both of your perspectives on what you see in the immediate future when it comes to tech and VC. There's both bull and bear cases that can be made. But maybe, Jordan, you can start off with your own view of the markets. It often comes down to, and I think both of you mentioned this, but it often comes down to time horizons. Um, and, you know, when you're talking to an investor or an individual, you can often tell kind of how far they think in the future by some of the language they use, right? And I think what we're seeing now is definitely different than what we've seen in the past, uh, you know, especially the past couple of years. But it's a question of if there's a was a lot of noise last year, um, and that noise has gone away, you know, perhaps it is easier to see what real companies are actually doing now, right? And perhaps last year it was a mistake to invest in the companies that were really hype and flashy and fluffy. And actually now you're not going to see any of those companies because no one's, you know, no one is giving them the attention that they got last year. And now the people getting attention, either the fund managers or the the founders are the ones building real businesses. And perhaps that's actually a better thing for the world, right? Because over the long term, what is going to endure? What is going to, no pun intended, but what is going to compound over the long term, right? I believe is going to be real, real businesses, real stuff that provide real value to the world. So I think on one hand, I would not trust anyone who, who says they know exactly what's going to happen in the future. I certainly don't. Um, but on another hand, I think you know, if you believe that now is an opportunity to try to understand, you know, what what real great businesses are out there, um, I think it is an exciting time. Now, you may ask, on the other hand, like, well, if it's such a great business, why are they raising money right now? Um, which I think is a totally valid question to be asking. And I think we'll need a little bit of time to calibrate so that companies can understand, okay, I'm a real business. I am growing. Should I go out and raise now? Is someone going to appreciate the work that we've done? And I think we're taking a little bit of time to see that, but I'd expect the best businesses to continue to be able to kind of navigate this world, although it will look different than you know what it did in the previous years. Yeah, I, I'm not going to predict the future entirely, but it, it is interesting time for sure in that, of course, we're seeing a lot of layoffs. And as a result, those layoffs are going to to encourage, in some cases, some people to start new companies. So I think I think what we're going to see is almost like this giant recycling uh, of sorts where you know it's historically been very difficult to recruit, especially as an early stage startup. Now it's it's easier and you have some of these people who will go and start their own companies and they'll start from the beginning, you know, they're starting from from the pre-seed stages. And so there'll be lots of opportunity, I believe, in the early stage to deploy capital. The big question that is on top of my mind is is really valuations. And valuations have, have not really changed all that much in the earlier stage. And part of that is because the time horizon to Jordan's point, you know, these companies, if they're successful and they exit, who knows what the macro climate will look like. But that is a challenge for us as an early stage investor in that if the market remains, if the multiples remain as they are in the public markets, is it wise to de- de- be deploying capital into a $25 million post-money pre-launch company? Um, now, there are always exceptions, especially with 
you know, the outliers in venture, but can you create a strong fund when that is your average entry price, you know, in the pre-seed or seed stage? Uh, that's questionable. And so I, there, there are a lot of unknowns, but there's also a lot of excitement. I think, you know, bear and bull cycles, I think are just, just the nature of the world, I feel like. And I think they're healthy to some extent, ultimately. Well, I agree with you, you both of you. And there's so many things that you said that some of which I want to highlight. So number one, I don't, I don't think any of us can actually prognosticate the future with any level of certainty. I mean, we never, we didn't see this coming. We certainly don't know what's coming with so many different variables out there. Second thing is within venture, we've seen these bust and boom cycles. You know, I started in 99 and I was like lending to these software companies, software, I'll put in quotes because not all of them were true software companies in 99 saw the bust. of course, 08, 09. And there's parallels. It's not exact to what we're seeing right now. But the one thing that we often have always looked at is in capital constrained markets like we are in right now, it actually lends itself to better discipline, both at funds and companies. And when you hand an entrepreneur almost an unlimited checkbook of capital, you're basically telling the company that whatever you do, there's more capital here, just grow, grow really fast. In fact, the the number one metric that people were looking at is growth rate and revenues, right? And it was almost revenues became the 1999 version of eyeballs. And it wasn't the quality of earnings. It wasn't the quality of those revenues. It was just growth at all costs because the public markets were rewarding that type of growth. At least from our perspective, again, we don't know what things will look like, but we do think the constrained market does provide entrepreneurs with more of a focus on like, can you build a real good business? And there's more concentration of talent because marginal companies are less likely to get funded. And because we've seen some of these layoffs, hopefully what that does is it drives some of those employees toward the most interesting companies. And so for one, we're probably more excited. We think technology itself is incredibly secular. The last week has been dominated by ChatGPT, and it really shows the power of things like AI. And so again, we'll, we'll see. But Fortunately, I think we're living in a world where digital transformation is here to stay and it's going to continue to accelerate. So really appreciate you both being on here and and being such thoughtful partners, as well as really understanding how people should responsibly invest in venture. I think there's been this whole push toward democratization, and I think that's okay to a certain degree. But I think without information and without being able to responsibly invest, sometimes democratization can go, can, can go too far. But again, thanks for the thoughts, guys. Really fun to, to have you guys on. Yeah, thanks, Samir. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ryan and Jordan. To learn more about them or Weekend Fund or Compound, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.